1: Hello, you're listening to Dave Arnold on Cooking Issues on the Heritage Radio Network, the show where you call in with your cooking issues and we try to solve them, be they technical, uh, be they not technical. We are going to work on them for you. Uh, The call-in number here is 718... Four nine seven two one two thats is 718-497-2128, and I'm told that for live call-ins, uh, we are authorized to give away uh, Heritage Meat uh, Pork Chops, Porterhouse Pork Chops, so that's an incentive to call in. Please do call in with your questions. I'm here with uh, Nastasha Lopez, also working at uh, Cooking Issues, and uh, we we actually have some email questions. If you want to email questions, email them to... Lopez at french dot com. right okay so uh, let's start Nastasha with some questions that were emailed in from uh, last week uh, what what do we have here
2: uh we have one from Mike who wants to know about uh Curing a large cut of meat, I think, or pastrami. All
1: right, so uh, yeah, so Mike is making pastrami uh, with beef blade, and uh, he's been pumping it with uh, liquids to to cure it, and he wants to maybe move to a, a vacuum machine. Now, some of the advantages of the vacuum machine is you don't have to use a lot of brine; you can go drier uh, with a dryer rub and cure quickly. And I can assure you that curing in a vacuum bag does work. Uh, I apologize to Mike; we we actually just got a vacuum marinator so that we can run a bunch of different vacuum tests and see uh, exactly. What the optimum vacuum level is there's some disagreement. some chefs I know when they put their uh, they, they'll use something like a, an Instacure powder or Morton's tender quick which is basically salt plus uh, curing powder in it curing powder is, is nitrates uh, nitrites rather uh, and uh, you know these these aren't some sort of crazy thing these have been used for hundreds of years so I don't want anyone saying we're adding some sort of crazy newfangled you know artificial crap to it nitrites have been in cured meats for centuries and centuries uh, actually millennia in the form of impurities that are already naturally occurring in salt deposits Around the world Uh, So that aside It's a little uh, Tirade tangent for you Uh, But um, If you just You know either use a brine or rub uh, your cure onto the meat and pack it in a vacuum bag. I think you'll notice uh, I usually use a high vacuum. Some you know professionals say that you actually don't want a super high vacuum because it can actually at a certain point hinder the uh, uh, you know, the penetration of the brine, but I, I haven't tested it yet, so I don't know. But you'll notice much much quicker penetration uh, in, in a vacuum bag. Much quicker. So for instance I haven't done pastrami this way, but uh, pork belly, uh, you can get almost all the way through a pork belly overnight in, uh, in, in a vacuum bag um so vacuum machine is definitely a great way to accelerate a cure now from a taste standpoint on a long cured item i would never use it to accelerate a cure on a long cooked a long cured item rather like a like a ham, let's say, because uh, a lot of the flavor of a ham, you know, I'm specifically talking about, you know, longer cured hams. Uh, has to do with the length of time it takes for uh, the curing to happen. So in general, even though I'm a tech guy, uh, things that are cured over a long period of time for flavor, I tend not to uh, try to accelerate too much. Uh, thanks, Mike. If that didn't answer your question, please, you know, post uh, something on the forums at uh, www.cookingissues.com forward slash forums or email us another question. Uh, Thanks for the question. And... uh Before I take the next question, I'd like to say that uh, today's show is sponsored by the Hearst Ranch. Hearst Ranch is the nation's largest single-source supplier of free-range, all-natural, grass-fed, and grass-finished beef. Since 1865, the Hearst family has raised cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of the central California coast. The result is beef with extraordinary flavor that's as memorable and as natural as the surrounding landscape. For more information, go to www.hearstranch.com. That's www.hearstranch.com. Hearstranch.com. Actually, I'd like to taste some of that stuff, huh? Yeah. Or maybe they'll send us that sounds some. Sounds really good. Yeah. Uh, and again, the number to call in for this show is 718-497-2128. Cooking Issues at 718-497-2128. All right, Nastasha, what's up next?
2: We have another question from uh, an email from Jason, who's a health nut and is going to buy a Circulator from Polyscience wants to know the best way to cook a skinless chicken breast. Uh, he wants to avoid butter or duck fat and use something like olive oil or coconut oil. Uh, should he bag it? Should he brine it? Bone off? What do
1: you think? All right. So, uh, what's the name again? Jason. All right, Jason. So, uh, you know, you caught me at a little bit of a disadvantage because I almost never cook for health. I almost always cook for for pure taste. Uh, you know, I'm always a little bit out of sorts when I, when you know I have to comment on. Um, nutrition uh however uh if if you just want to know how to make a skinless chicken breast taste as good as you can uh you've gone the right route with it with a circulator now here's the problem if you vacuum a chicken breast uh, at, in, in a vacuum bag and then circulate it, uh, you can. Uh, I would. I would do it at 63 degrees. By the way, if that's a little too a, a standard chicken breast in a vacuum bag, uh, 63 degrees for roughly uh, an you know an hour or so is more than enough. That's a good way to go. If that's a little too underdone for you, uh, I would up it to um, maybe 64. I wouldn't go above 65. I know this runs counter to what you're taught your whole life, but uh, trust me, try it, uh, and I think you'll you'll agree. Uh, I tend and not to like to vacuum the, the chicken because when you do it tends to take on a canned chicken texture. It's almost too juicy, and when you bite into it, all the juices kind of flow out, and, uh, and then the third and fourth chew are a little drier than, than I like. So I tend to uh, put them into Ziploc bags and cook them that way. Oh, uh, by the way, for anyone listening uh, who doesn't know what the hell we're talking about, uh, the, the piece of equipment we're talking about is an immersion circulator, and an immersion circulator is basically just a piece of equipment that uh, lets you keep very, very accurate uh, water temperatures, and this allows you to cook things very, very accurately. So you never you never overcook them. You don't have to monitor them too much. It's very simple. Uh, you know, food doesn't dry out. It's it's a great piece of equipment. And you know, if you look under uh, low temperature and sous vide on www.cookingissues.com, we have enough information to choke you uh, on uh, immersion circulators if you want to know about it. So go go look at it there. But they're actually a fantastic piece of equipment that people are using more in their homes. Now back to your question. I wouldn't vacuum bag them, even though I love vacuum machines. I would use uh, Ziploc bags. Uh, and the way you put it in the reason. Is is because if, if you don't put a vacuum on it, you're going to get much more of a natural texture in the chicken breast. Now you can use any liquid you want, really. You know, from chicken stock up to uh, olive oil. I tend not to bag too much with the, my really flavorful olive oils because I think the taste interaction can be a little bit strange sometimes. But you know, you can use basically any anything you want. You don't need that much of it in the bag actually so you just seal the bag up till it's almost done and then the trick is dunking it under water uh, and then the water basically displaces all the air so that you get a nice uh, seal uh, and it's very, very simple to do. There's, there's a, you know, not to pump the blog again, but on www.cookingissues.com there's a section on Ziploc bagging uh, with step-by-step picture instructions on how to do a really good uh, bagging job with a Ziploc and I, I, can, I can make my Ziplocs very quickly look as good as a vacuum-packed job to, you know, the untrained eye. So I think that's really kind of the way the way to go. And you can, you know, season it normally. You don't really need to brine it, uh, except for the brine's going to increase the salt level on the inside of the meat, which is going to give you uh, kind of probably a better taste and texture, but you don't need it from an overcooking standpoint because you're not going to overcook it. Now, because you're not going to have a lot of texture on this because it's a skinless chicken breast and it's going to be somewhat soft, these preps are usually better, I think, kind of chopped up for use in salads. They're really good for cold preps uh, the next day, um, but, you know, I tend not not to eat skinless uh, chicken on its own. But you know this is a a really good technique uh, for a cold prep because when it cools down, it's still going to be delicious. It's not going to be dry at all. Uh, And so to recap, 63 uh, for about an hour, 64 maybe, if you like it a little bit firmer. You think that that got it?
2: Yeah, I think so. All right. Uh, We have another question. We're going to wait to see if your friend... Michael Ascanis calls in.
1: Oh, yes. Uh, we have a question regarding uh, a recipe from Michael Ascanis, the pastry chef at La Uh And I was too stupid to uh, text him beforehand to ask him the answer to the question. So we, we have a text into him. So we're going to handle that, uh, that question towards the uh, end of the uh, program.
2: But since we were off last week, why don't you tell them how you spent your Fourth of July and what you cooked?
1: Ah, well, okay. So... Uh, you know 4th of July I usually go either to Maine or to Cape Cod or some combination thereof Um, this year I went to Cape Cod and, and you know as many of you know Cape Cod in Massachusetts is, you know, kind of lobster country. The guys in Maine actually make fun of the Cape Cod lobsters. They say the Maine lobsters taste better than the Cape Cod lobsters, and the guys in Canada make fun of the Maine lobsters. So f- the further north you go, the more they make fun of the southerly lobsters. Anyway, that's that's, that's neither here nor there. But, uh, so anyway, so Maine lobsters, right, they have, a, there's a catch size limit. Like, you can't catch lobsters that are too small, and you can't ca- catch lobsters that are too big, and it's based on the, the measurement of the, of the back shell. And that's a conservation, uh, method, uh, you know, effort, and, uh, uh, it must be working because the the you know the lobster uh, fishery in in maine is actually still quite healthy uh, now in Cape Cod, they don't have those kinds of limits on male lobsters. Ma- male lobsters, you can basically take any size you want if you dive for them. There's certain, I think there's limits on how many you can take per day. Uh, you're not supposed to take big females because lobsters, unlike most creatures, as they get older and older and older, they still bear more, and not just the same amount of eggs, more and more and more and more eggs. So an older lobster, female lobster, is much more valuable to uh, the lobster population than a than young female lobster. So you shouldn't take the older, the older females. But, um, the older males I kind of think are, are fair game now a lot of people think lobsters big lobsters they t- that they taste bad and th- this is just because two problems one they cook them too long because they have to cook them a long time to, to cook them through uh, and secondly they don't uh, they don't serve them properly. Lobsters, as they get older, the muscle fibers get bigger and bigger and coarser and coarser. So if you were to bite into uh, the lobster tail, let's say of an old lobster, it would taste kind of rubbery and tough. Now the trick with this is is to just slice the tail and meat like that into discs, and then the fibers are already shortened, and you're actually biting, uh, you know, kind of with the grain, and it breaks apart, and you know, it has a different texture from a young lobster tail, but it's still, you know, very delicious. So uh, you know, a lot of people they don't kind of they don't believe this. And, you know, usually the biggest lobster I'll cook is like six, eight, eight pounds, which is still a monster by most standards. I mean, uh, you, know, you know, most people are out there with their, you know, 1, 2, and 3-pound lobsters, sissies. And uh, and so, uh, what you know, what we did is I went, walked into this store in Truro, Mass, and uh, I was like, yeah, what kind of lobster do you have? What kind of, you know, what, what kind of size lobsters? The guy's like, yeah, about 20 pounds. It was 20 pounds, 20-pound 20 lobster. I was like, jeez, 20-pound lobster. I bought it, basically. Uh, and a 20-pound lobster – is really really big lobster and I thought if you could get any lobster to prove my point that big lobsters aren't any worse than small lobsters that you know it's going to be harder to get one bigger than about uh, twenty pounds. Now the guy in the store told me that a twenty pound this twenty pound lobster is like one hundred and thirty years old. And you know, and then everyone else was like, "Oh my God, you're eating something that's one hundred and thirty years old! It's older than anyone at the table." You know, the, the lobster almost could have fought in the Civil War. All this kind of and but that's the nonsense. First of all, that's, the lobster does not fight in the Civil War. <laughs> the lobster is sitting at the bottom of the ocean, you know, killing other lobsters when it can and hiding whenever it molts. You know, it's still just a lobster. It's still you know, its brain function doesn't get any higher just because it's old. Old, right? I mean, that's kind of thing, this kind of sentimental notion that just because it's old. You know, gooey duck clams can live to be uh, 140, and, uh, you know, people don't have that much sympathy. Well, I don't know anyone that has a lot of sympathy for the gooey duck. Anyway, anyway, that's aside the point, the fact <laughs> of the matter is, this lobster wasn't actually 130 years old. Uh, you know, that's based on these kind of crazy formulas that they have for lobsters, uh, you know, that don't kind of fit older lobsters. It was probably, but it, I mean, it was old. I mean, let's I mean, be honest. It was probably like 60 or 70 years old, you know, so, uh, yeah, anyway, uh, So here's what I did. I had the guy at the lobster store. He wanted to cook it for 45 minutes, which obviously would have made it, you know, inedible and terrible. And this is why people think big lobsters are bad. So instead, what I had him do is I had him steam it for uh, eight minutes. This kills the lobster and it lets the meat separate from the shell. Then I got metal shears because the shell is so darn thick, and I cut all the meat out of it, right? And then I sliced it thin and I Ziploc bagged it. Uh, with butter and then I quick poached each individual slice. So each slice was cooked very quickly, which preserves the texture. The lobster that's cooked for too long gets mushy, and it was sliced properly so that when you chewed it, it wasn't going to be tough. And it was like I think it was one of the best lobsters I've ever made. And it, you know, it certainly it fed our whole crew. Delicious. So anyway, that you can check out that post uh, also. You know, pumping <laughs> ourselves again. Why not on www.cookingissues.com? Anyway, uh, I've been told that we're uh, what are we? We are going to break? Yeah, we're going. We're going out to break, and we'll be right back with cooking issues.
3: Funky Down Nasty. Hey, listen to the man. Godfather, God, Hey, back. Cold bloody. men
1: You are listening to Dave Arnold on Cooking Issues on the Heritage Radio Network, where you call in and we answer your cooking issues. Uh, please call in to 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. Call in with any cooking-related question you want, and you will get free delicious pork chops. I
2: emailing don't... won't get you the
1: pork yeah, chops. Yeah, sorry, folks. No, emailing, e- no, no, uh, no pork chops with, uh, with the emails. Um, Okay, so uh, we we talked about uh lobster i'm going I'm gonna wait a couple more minutes to see whether or not we get Michael Ascanis to uh, get get him on the phone to talk to him about his recipe um, uh, that we're talking about the the question came from actually a, a, a person uh, who reads our blog and she it came from the person who sent us uh the mana yeah. yeah mana yeah delicious mana uh candy, which you can also read about on, <laughs> on www.cookingissues.com. com pump 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 okay <laughs> uh so uh let's talk about cocktails for a minute while we're while we're waiting um Next week, I guess, uh, I'm going off to New Orleans to go to the Tales of the Cocktail, which is a you know, kind of a cocktail convention that they have in New Orleans every year. And you know, a lot of the great you know, bar people go every year, and it's, a, it's kind of a crazy, debauched drink fest. It's in New Orleans in the middle of the summer because you know, they're too cheap to have it in New Orleans any other time. And no one, no one wants to go to New Orleans you know, in the middle of July where it's a billion degrees and you know, 100% humidity uh, you know, and sit in you know, some of the best old bars. In the country, unair conditioned, you know, drinking yourself into oblivion. But yet, I do. I do it every year. Uh, <clears throat> anyway, uh, j- just kidding. It's a great, great event. Um, the um, so this year I'm going uh, and I'm part of a seminar called uh, what's it called? The science of shaking, stirring. No, I did shaking last yeah. year. Uh, you know, Evan Evan Clem, the you know, the kind of well known bartender. He's kind of the you know, the head of the BR Guest, you know, mega restaurant, Chains Bar program, and uh, he pulls me in you know, every year. Last year, we did kind of the science behind shaking a cocktail, where we, we actually came up with some interesting uh, information, which is, as far as the dilution of your cocktail uh, is concerned, and as far as the temperature of your cocktail is concerned, uh, really, with, as long as you're within reasonable limits, the way you shake the cocktail doesn't make a bit of difference, really. Uh, it, it makes a definite difference on the, also the ice type doesn't make as much difference as, as you think. It makes a different difference, uh, difference on the texture of the drink, how it tastes, you know, the texture of it in your mouth, but in terms of temperature and dilution, it, it doesn't really make that, that much, much of a difference. This year, we're taking on uh, stirring and you'll have to, uh, you know, we're, we're, I, I suppose I shouldn't post the answers before the seminar. That would mean yeah, people didn't we'll have to go, go to the seminar. Man. Yeah, right. <laughs> so uh, we'll be posting mm-hmm. that stuff hopefully after next week after the, after the seminar, Tales of the Cocktail. But something I will talk about is uh, dilution and pre-batching cocktails. So, you know, a, a lot of times you have to make uh, a cocktail and then, you know, batch it all together, let's say you're doing an event or a function or a party, and you have to put all the cocktail together beforehand and then serve it out. Uh, and a lot of people have kind of crazy ideas in their heads on how to figure out how much water to add to a pre-batch cocktail to, uh, to really get it to, to work properly when you, when you put it in the fridge. Uh, so let's. pre By the way, pre-batch cocktails. It's very hard to pre-batch uh, a shaken cocktail because uh, you know you really do need to shake a shaken cocktail to, to get the texture right. We ran side by side blind taste tests of uh, drinks that are uh, should be shaken versus stirred, and uh, and we we did we did them both shaken and stirred. So we did a daiquiri which should be shaken, and we did you know a daiquiri stirred and a daiquiri shaken blind with blindfolds on, and you easily tell the difference. And we also took drinks that should be stirred, like a Manhattan. We uh, you know which is uh, you, you know wh- uh, whiskey. We used uh, r- you know rye whiskey, uh, vermouth, and uh, some bitters, and uh, you know we, we stirred some and, and shook some and t- tasted them blind, and hu- huge difference. Uh, now uh, the shaking is hard to emulate in a pre batch cocktail unless you have liquid nitrogen. It turns out we've done some tests that if you if you chill a drink a la minute that you've already diluted with liquid nitrogen, you can emulate the texture of a shaking drink pretty well. But uh, stirred drinks. Uh, are basically good if you just dilute them properly and then chill them because uh, ba- basically stirring is just a chilling and diluting process. It's not a texturizing process, and that's why that's why you use it for those drinks. You don't want to add a lot of extra texture in a stirred drink. So you know if you can, you choose a stirred drink to do your pre-batch drinks with. And then here's how to determine how much how much water to add. Make your uh, make a single drink, right? Make it. Uh, using volume like you normally would with jiggers, hmm? then uh, weigh that on an accurate scale. Weigh the drink. Write that number down. Right, that's how much drink you're starting with. Now, uh, add your ice. Stir it just like you're making a normal drink. Normal drink. Right. Stir it. Right. Then strain it. Hmm? Now weigh how much the drink weighs. Now, that is uh, that is the weight of. The total cocktail. If you subtract the weight of the liquor that went into it, the liquor and ingredients that went into it, from the final weight of the cocktail, you have basically how much water you should add. And that's really the best way to determine, instead of guessing in your head 25%. And it also doesn't work to try and dilute it by just diluting it with water when it's at room temperature and then tasting it, because when you chill it, the balance is going to be off. So you really just want to make a drink the traditional way and then weigh how much water is in it. It's slightly more complicated than that because some of your liquor is actually held on the ice and so you have to do a lot of fancy finagling uh but within two or three grams of uh, water uh you know you're going to be pretty much right doing it the way the way i just told you it seems complicated but you're i think your your pre-batch drinks are going to thank you for it and you only need to do it once if you write down the recipe uh you can get that recipe right every time you don't have to retest it every time so it's a little bit uh of a pain in the butt but well well worthwhile right Rastasi? yes yes (laughs) yes uh, okay, so uh, see that's uh, pre-batching, uh, pre-batching cocktails. What else? Should, what else should we talk about? Let's talk about way? the
2: meat that's coming in
1: today. Oh my god, yeah. So okay, so the, what's the name of the butcher again? It's like
2: Sizmer, Sizmer, Yeah. Cismar? yeah.
1: In, uh, where are they, out of Chicago? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's, a, there's this butcher shop, and uh, you know I'm, I'm ruining the name, but it's, it's like CISMER, C-Z, C-Z what?
2: C-Z-I-M-E-R.
1: Yeah. Uh, and uh, these guys have been around for decades and decades. I think they're you know, a couple generations old of business now at this point, right? Right. Yeah. And uh, they specialize in uh, bizarre, rare meats, right? And meats that you wouldn't normally get. And uh, so, what does that mean I'm not talking you know buffalo, although they do have that I'm talking beaver and <laughs> <laughs> lion, uh, you know uh, what else what else we get raccoon, bear, you know things that you can't you can't normally get, and meats that you can't normally uh, buy because you can't you know in this country you can't buy meat that's been hunted by a hunter. You have to know a hunter who legally bags meat in order to get these kind of game meats. So, before I get people writing in telling me I'm a horrible person for ordering lion meat to to taste, uh, and by the way, we're gonna we're gonna taste a tiny piece of each one of them, then bag them and cook them sous vide because we think that these tough you know tough older meats are gonna be best that way. Anyway, so before you get angry at me uh, about ordering these these meats, um, you should know kind of how it how it happens that these meats uh, are sold. Uh, it's not a, a pretty story, but here's how it is: people get Lions as pets because they're crazy, right? I mean, they're insane, you know? So they get lions as pets or they have lions and they use the lions as uh, to breed you know like they're breeding lions either for I don't know for what for zoos, circuses, whatever for other you know freak shows who want lions as pets right so they they breed them and then once they're no longer um, good breeders anymore or if someone has a pet and they don't want that pet anymore they give them to uh, animal brokers and uh, you know just like stray cats you know you give a stray cat and they get put down you don't have to see it you don't have to do it but You basically know your cat's being put down. The same thing happens with a lion. So they get the lion and if they can't sell it, which often they can't on an older lion, the lion is killed. The actual the most valuable part about it is the skin. The skin is sold off for, you know, for fur, for lion fur, for you know, for whatever making rugs rugs I guess, I don't know. But then the meat is basically a byproduct. So you know, rather than let it go to waste, uh, you know, these guys uh, you know, in Chicago uh buy, you know, the the meat from these uh, exotic animal brokers and then freeze it and resell it so you, you, no one's going out and slaughtering lions for the purpose of food these are you know animals that probably shouldn't have been in the situation that they were in but not through the fault of the you know the butcher uh it's just you know you know once it once you've killed the animal you might as well put it to use so we're going to taste uh, all of these meats what do we have coming in we got
2: we have lion black bear a whole raccoon mm. and two beaver tails
1: Two beaver tails. Uh, I thought we also got some of the regular be- beaver meat, too. No?
2: No. I thought we did. No. You
1: sure?
4: I'm pretty sure.
1: Hmm. Beaver tail is an interesting one. The, and the, yak. Oh, yak. Yes, yes. The, the Tibetan favorite, yak. We'll get some yak milk cheese. We'll go get some yak milk cheese, and then we'll have, you know, yak, yak, and yak. We'll get some yak butter, and we'll make Tibetan, Tibetan tea with yak butter floating on the top of it, which is actually wretched. I don't know how people drink that, but uh, we'll make it, you know, in the sense of, you know, we, we want to be authentic. Authentic sous vide Tibetan dinner. Anyway. Um, Beaver's an interesting one because uh, back in the day here's the thing the butcher laughed laughed his uh you know rear off because uh, he says there's no meat on a beaver tail, and he always has people asking him to 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 buy it to eat it, but he says there's basically no meat on it, so you know what are you gonna do and um, you know I think the reason most people call him i don 't know how much of a history buff he is, but for all you history buffs out there um, you know back in the day, there were many days, not just Fridays when Catholics weren't allowed to eat uh Meat. There were many, many you know fast days and Lenten days, and on those days you weren't allowed to eat meat. You could only eat fish, right? And so that you know, that, in fact, that's my theory why in Italian uh, recipes you'll find very few recipes that use dairy and uh, fish because it wasn't just meat you weren't allowed to have on a fast day. It was it was dairy, so you didn't cook with dairy. You didn't cook, uh, I believe, also eggs, and you didn't cook with meat. So these were you know basically fish based uh, fish based dishes, and this helped you. You know, fuel the, uh, the dried stockfish, uh, you know, and, the, you know, the dried cod, uh, you know, dr- dried fish business for hundreds of years. Uh, anyway, uh, you know, and there's all sorts of religious reasons why they thought meat inflamed the passions and it was good, etc., blah, blah, blah. So anyway, so uh, Beaver Tail... Because, uh, you know, they had kind of, you know, this is pre Linnaeus, they had wacky, you know, ways of categorizing animals. So the the actual beaver was a uh, an animal and you couldn't eat that on the fast days. But beaver tail was seen kind of like fish. And so you could eat beaver tail on a fast day. And so you actually get these recipes or these mentions anyway in medieval documents of beaver tail, cooking beaver tail. And this, this has got to be why this guy gets the interest in it because there's lots of uh, history buffs out there who you know are, are doing this kind of thing. Oddly also whale clearly is not labeled as a meat. Strangely, it was labeled as a fish. So if you could get a hold of some whale meat back in the day, I don't advocate that. But if you could get a hold of it, you could have that on a, on a, on a fast day uh, as well, I believe. I'm not sure well, how seals classified, but uh, I don't know. Anyway, so we'll let you know how the uh, the beaver tail and the lion no. is. The lion's actually supposedly interesting because if you think about it. There's no commercially raised meat that we have that uh, comes from a carnivore. Uh, and supposedly, uh, you know, they have a completely different uh, taste, uh, carnivores do. So we'll, we'll let you know uh, when, that, when that comes in. Uh, what's going on, Sassy?
2: We have two more minutes, and then uh, we're trying to look up the, the tables from Douglas Baldwin. Okay,
1: so uh, I have a, a question that came in. Who did you come in from? Caleb. Caleb, I have a question coming in from Caleb, who's looking up. Uh, you know, Doug, Douglas Baldwin. Douglas Baldwin has a on, online a sous vide primer, and he just came out with uh, a book on sous vide cooking. And he's a he's a mathematician, I believe. He lives uh, out in Colorado somewhere near Denver, uh, and he has a bunch of tables uh, in there uh, that allow you to calculate uh, exactly when food's temperature, when food has come up to temperature, when you're cooking it. Uh, sous vide or low temperature in, in, in a circulating bath, and for you know for those of you not not hip to the fact. Uh, this is a, you know, a huge way of cooking now is that you'll put something in a bag and then put it in water, and it very gently and very evenly heat- heats food. But a lot of people, when they're starting out, they worry a lot, lot, lot about whether or not the inside of their food has come up to, to temperature. Uh, and so they'll do things like stick thermometers into it, which is, I think, really kind of fraught with problems because uh, you have to get the thermometer in the right place. Otherwise, you don't get the right answer. Uh, and you know, a lot of times you won't get it in the right place, and then you'll un- undercook something. Um, you know, the thermometer can puncture the bag and you can get leaks and this causes problems i th- most often I think thermometers cause more problems uh, than than they help so uh Douglas Baldwin being a mathematician along with Nathan Mirvold, who's coming out with the uh, the superbook uh, in December i think uh, November december on on cooking Nathan Mirvold is a uh, Microsoft guy who um, you know, uh, has a huge passion for cooking and has probably one of the greatest kitchens in the world. Is working with uh, Chris Young, formerly of The Fat Duck, and 15 other cooks on on making the world's kind of uh, greatest technology cookbook. Uh, you know, coming to uh, Amazon uh, soon. I believe you can actually pre-order it now, as of last week, if you've got the got the money for it. And uh, anyway, so it, Nathan Mirvold on a on a website called Egullet a number of years ago, a good number of years ago at this point, published a bunch of tables on uh, how to figure out uh, how Long, it would take food to get up to a certain temperature in a water bath based on certain dimensions. And those tables work and are probably easier to work out than a formula. I don't know uh, the formula because we haven't been able, be able to find it yet, but I would definitely look up on Eagle at Nathan Mirvold's tables, which are going to be much easier to use than a formula unless you're trying to create your own Excel uh, document. Um, Without having the formula in front of me, it's hard for me to tell exactly what he's doing because he could either be calculating the food based on the fact that it's treating it as a big slab and trying to heat through the slab, or he could be talking about cylinders that are heating through. Uh, But I'll tell you this – uh, all formulas that – his formula, I'm pretty sure is right. I've seen it once and it, it's and it's good and he's a mathematician. He's, he's good at that sort of thing. But any formula that tells you X number of inches per uh, – X number of minutes per pound or X number of uh, minutes per inch are are egregiously false because as, as things get bigger, it's not linear how much longer it takes to cook it. I tend not to use these formulas. I tend to cook a couple of things and then store in my mind how big those things are and how long they took to cook and then just do it that way. And and I'm almost never, uh, you know, wrong. So I know that an egg uh, takes about uh, 45 minutes to an hour to get all the way up to temperature. A rolled chicken, uh, you know, like a like a torchon thing, t- takes uh, like an hour. I know that a 36 inch striped bass, the size I normally get, takes three hours. You know, so you kind of build up this knowledge. Uh, but um, I'll try and post some information on that in, in the forum uh, for you sometime this week. Sorry, I couldn't be m- more accurate on the on the answers. We should go to break. Go to break. All right, yeah. so we're going to go to our second break now. Uh, please call in to uh, claim your pork. You can ask anything, you know, the, the price of eggs, although I don't know it right now, uh, <laughs> anything like that at 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128, Cooking Issues.
4: he is Mr. Johnson, don't play those blues so sad Please, Mr. Johnson Don't play the blues so sad Cause the night before last I lost the best girl I ever had He's Mr. Johnson Send my love six love six old. Send me tonight Like I've never been said before these Mr. John Don't sing those blues so sad Please, Mr. Johnson Don't play those blues so sad Because the night before last I lost the best I ever.
1: This is Dave Arnold, uh, Cooking Issues on Heritage Radio Network. Uh, call in your questions at 718-497-2128. That's 718 718- Four nine seven two one two eight. Caller gets free delicious pork chops. Uh, okay, so uh, we're having trouble getting through to Michael Ascanis, the pastry chef at La Bernardin. and so I'm just going to look at the question from Kitchen Girl. Uh, Kitchen Girl, without the uh, it's G. By the way, if you are look, she has a blog. If you're looking for a blog, it's Kitchen G R L. Kitchen Girl. Uh, that's her. That's her blog. And um, she sent us some delicious. Actually, before I go into her question, some mana candy. So, uh, do we talk? Talk about that last time, Sazi. No,
2: talk about yeah. All
1: right, so you know, mana uh, is a r- real interesting substance. It, uh, it, it, when, I'm, when I want to say mana, I mean like mana from heaven, like like in the Bible. Uh, and uh, you know, for you know, my whole life, you know, this is something I've you know read about, and known about, uh, never knew was actually a real a real thing, a real product until uh, this guy named uh, um, you know uh, the uh, saffron king. Uh, uh, gave us some. He's like, here's mana. I'm like, what? what? the hell are you talking about, mana? And then I basically, I did a, a lot, a lot of research. It turns out that mana isn't one thing. Mana is a huge variety of different products. And, and here, here's what they all have in common. One, they're sweet. Okay. Two, they appear as if from nowhere. Uh, they, you know, they're not, they're not cultivated. They're, they're wild things. They're providential. They're, uh, you know, they're, they're kind of, their are bonuses. Uh, and, uh and so, you know, those are basically the two main main criteria. Most of them are actually dried uh, sap from trees. Uh, you know. Probably you know a lot of it hasn't been researched actually strangely, but uh, little bugs will chew on the undersides of leaves. The sap will come out, then dry up, uh, and and that dried sap is mana mixed mixed along with you know little bits of twigs and leaves and other nonsense like that. Another way mana is made is is actually it's it's honeydew, which means that a bug bites into the leaf, uh, and this is honeydew is you know what aphids make you know here in the states and ants collect it. So what what honeydew is is a bug will bite a juicy leaf for stem of a plant and the pressure of the sap is so uh, strong compared to the bug that it literally shoots uh, it shoots sap through the bug and out it's behind Uh, and and that's honeydew I mean it's gross to say it that way but it's basically like Force-pumped bug poop that then uh, dries up on the outside into a delicious sweet substance. Uh, anyway, so they go out into the desert. Most of these manas happen in the Middle East, you know, kind of you know uh, because it's dry enough there for these manas to form. And uh, people will go out in the morning with twigs and beat on bushes and catch this mana that comes down, uh, you know, from you know from the bushes and and use it. And uh, there's dozens and dozens of different types, but there's a there's a candy that's been made. Uh, I guess in you know the entire that entire area, uh, you know Iraq, Iran, uh, and uh, called Ghaz in Iran. I forget what it's called in uh, in, in Iraq. But uh, Kitchen Girl sent us some of this Mana candy, which is basically just Mana uh, with a little bit you know more sugar and 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 nuts in it. I forget whether they put egg whites in. I have the ingredient list on the on the blog, uh, but uh, it's it's delicious and uh, it's got a really unique texture that uh you know it's it's weird it's kind of chewy and but it breaks it's very mana like or you can get the straight mana which is delicious you know uh mixed in in bourbon uh which we which is incredibly delicious you can get that from saffron king uh he has a website the saffron king and this stuff is is crazy because they, they not so much the mana candy that didn't change as you as you bit him all the time that was more of a textural thing the candy uh but um the actual mana itself, every bite you take of it, tastes a little bit different than the bite you had before. And different people have different perceptions of it. Uh, I wrote an article in the uh, New York Times on it, which uh, you, know, you, can, you can search for, and we, we did a blog post on it. But anyway, it's a long way of saying Kitchen Girl sent us a question. <laughs> uh, you know the, She very kindly sent us the, uh, the mana, and then she, she has a question. She's working on uh, a pâté de fouille recipe uh pat, I never know how to pronounce it. Whether it's patate fruit or pat fruit. I'm, I'm terrible at that. And, and pastry chefs always laugh at me and correct me. As do all the Frenchies at the school, but you know, crap on them. Uh, so anyway, so she's working on Michael Escanis's, uh his recipe here, and uh, basically what you do is is you're cooking the um, fr- uh, fruit puree to 180 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, uh, with sugar, then you add pectin, sugar, and glucose syrup, and then bring it up to a higher temperature, 225 uh, Fahrenheit, and then pour it into a Silpat tray to set. Um, and she's having problems with her sugar, uh, with with the sorry, the fruit burning in the in the puree when she, when she's doing it, um, and. I don't disagree. I'm sure she is uh, having some problems. She says that at 180 degrees Fahrenheit, her fruit is starting to brown and sometimes burn, uh, and that it only gets worse when she adds more sugar. And she's thinking that what's happening is her pan actually is getting too hot. Uh, So she's actually getting scorching because her pan is too hot. Uh, Now, I don't have a lot of uh, experience with this, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to make some random stabs at ways to try and fix this, and then I'm actually going to try and get the actual answer, and I'll post it uh, in the forums at Cooking issues.com but um, I guarantee that Michael uh, is probably using an induction burner which is going to be much more accurate as temperature control and so much less likely to scorch than if you're using an open flame burner uh, and and a pan especially you know I don't know uh, you know how good the temperature you know conduction is there but um anyway uh 225 you should actually be okay it shouldn't actually burn if at 225 if you if you have good temperature control at the bottom of the pan and i know this because uh i've i've been trying to test out um caramelization of uh of sugars and uh and fruits in pressure cookers at temperatures well in excess of that without uh, burning, uh, and so you should be able to do it. So I would uh, I would use an induction pan that's got very accurate temperature control to prevent scorching, and maybe go slow. Uh, and you know, she asks at the end, she has a circul- immersion circulator. Can she do it in a water bath? No, there's no way to get uh, a water bath up to um, up to 220. 220- two twenty five unless you put it under pressure, but then you're 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 ruining the whole point of boiling it isn't the temperature actually. It's it's at a certain temperature you've gotten rid of enough water that when it cools down it'll have enough solids. So if you if you do something in a water bath, you're not boiling the water off. And any of these pectin and candy recipes with sugar are are, are Basically, requiring that you remove a certain amount of water, and the way that you guarantee that you've removed it is by reaching a certain temperature at atmospheric pressure. Now, you could—I have never tried this actually. You could maybe do a very low temperature Pat Fouy, in uh, in uh, in, a, in a rotovap. It's kind of an interesting question. You know what I mean? Like if you evaporate the water off of uh, off of a uh, you know uh, you know a, a mixture under vacuum I should be able I've never thought of this before G- crap this might work yeah, you, like, you, like we could do a low temperature one of these because the, the pectin needs to make it to a certain temperature to, uh, to work right so it needs to get up to at least regular boiling but I could take something to regular boiling then throw it in the, in the rotovap I could set the rotovap at boiling right mm-hmm. dissolve the pectin in it Mm-hmm. right huh and then and then evaporate off the water and i know exactly how much i know how much water because i can look up i'm not seriously like I, can, I i can figure out like what my finished total solids uh, solids content is. pectin is one of these uh, pectin's a hydrocolloid it's natural we've been using it for you know since there's been fruit we've been using pectin i don't want to hear that chemicals or any crap like that uh Pectin's great, but standard pectins that you use for these kinds of things, Pat they, they—they uh, first of all, they need to be heated up, uh, to, I think to boiling or roughly there, close to there, to, to work properly. But also, they require two things, acidity. Mm-hmm. And high soluble solids. They need, uh, uh, and what that means is something like sugar that's going to bind all the water that's that, that's left there, so that the gel, uh, so that the pectin gels and forms a good uh, thing. That's why if you try to make a jelly and, and there's not enough acid, it doesn't work. And why you like, you know, you always add not just for flavor to make it tart, but to make it work. And why if you don't cook your jelly long enough, it's not going to set. Right. That's how pectin works. Caramels, on the other hand, are basically just solidifying sugar by removing water, uh, or you know, f- candies rather, caramel. You're actually breaking. Breaking the sugar down. Anyway, that's basically how it works. But I should be able to do a, a, a pectin, right, at a, at, a, at a much lower temperature using a standard pectin and a rotovat making an uncooked uh, thing with traditional pectin. Maybe I'll try it. Of course, you know, you can use... You can use different kinds of pectins and get the same uh, effect without having to go to such high soluble solids using a a, a kind of pectin called uh, um, LMA, Lomethoxyamidated pectin, which you know, uh, whatever, but most people don't have access to that. Of course, most people don't have access to a rotavap either, so what the (laughs) hell am I talking about? Uh, Okay. We should tell people that you're teaching
2: a class uh, on the 28th for high-tech cocktails at the school if they're
1: interested. I am? Yes, you are. When? The July twenty eighth. Okay, July twenty eighth. Uh, Nils Norin, the head of uh, the uh, whole Magilla at the French Culinary Institute, and I uh, are cooking a uh, teaching a high tech uh, cocktail class for the uh, public. Yeah, for the public. And basically, what you do is you come to the French Culinary Institute, and we'll do. You know, like two or, th- two or three cocktails that, you know, that you can't possibly do at home using, like a, using a rotary evaporator and liquid nitrogen. Well, you could. I mean, if you're Nathan Mirvold, you could do anything at home. But, you know, uh, we use, uh, most of you can't do at home. And then we're going to actually teach you some technology that you can use. Like, for instance, how to clarify lime juice in, in 20 minutes. And this is something we do. It's actually, you know, that technique is exactly one year, one year old. Wow. Yeah, cool. Uh, anyway, so, yeah, come uh, look, go to uh, www.frenchculinary.com com, And uh, you can look up that class. Um, you know, that's uh, – we're actually headed back there. We've got a lot of cocktail tests to do uh, back at the, at the French Culinary. I'm slightly – I have to say I'm slightly disappointed. That, so am I. That nobody called in to claim their pork. I enjoyed all your email questions. Uh, Please send more email questions, but if you can call in live, it gives me the opportunity to speak to you, which I enjoy. I I like talking over the phone. This is why I never answer emails, but I do speak over the phone if you can reach me. Uh, So next week, we're going to be here live again. With Harold McGee. With Harold McGee. Harold McGee will be our telephone guest. He's not going to be live in the studio, but he's going to call in and he'll be here answering your questions as well. So if you don't care what I have to say about your questions, (laughs) perhaps you'll care about Uh, What Harold McGee has to say about your questions And next week the the number will be the same 718-497-2128 Cooking Issues Today has been brought to you by The Hearst Ranch Hearst Ranch is the nation's largest single-source supplier Of free-range, all-natural, grass-fed and grass-finished beef I'm Dave Arnold And this is Cooking Issues on the Heritage Radio Network
4: Oh, you did man